0: What we'd be doing um, is being in the next chapter of Luke. So if you haven't been with us before, um, our our typical kind of standard procedure is that we're, we start in a book and we just work our way through a book, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, over the course of months or a year, however long it might take us to do that. And so we've been in Luke now for almost a year, and last week we landed um, on Palm Sunday in Luke on Palm Sunday. Um, but if you've looked ahead in Luke, Palm Sunday doesn't lead immediately into Easter. We actually have some more teaching. And so next week we will pick up in, in Luke from, from where we left off. But this morning um, we're going to step out of Luke just for this week. Um, we, I considered jumping ahead in Luke and doing Luke's kind of resurrection passage, but it felt like we were shortchanging Luke just a little bit there. And so we're going to step out um, just for this week. Um, listen, I w- we we talked about this Friday night at our at our Good Friday service, that the emotions of of that week, the roller coaster that the disciples would have been on, right as they last Sunday as we celebrated Palm Sunday, right the entrance of Jesus into Jerusalem, right as the disciples are saying, hey this is our king, and there's this ant- anticipation and expectation that God is going to do something tremendous in Jerusalem. They're unsure of exactly what, and so people are waving palm branches, they're laying coats and palm branches on the ground, and they're exclaiming, like, we've seen Him do tremendous work for three years. This is our King. And the Pharisees, the religious leaders, are saying, Teacher, Jesus, rebuke them. They're calling you the Messiah. Like, stop them. And Jesus tells the Pharisees, listen, if they're silent, the rocks themselves will cry out. And so you can imagine just this bolstered enthusiasm and excitement from the disciples. And then they go into the week, right? And on Thursday night, they're having the Passover meal. They're celebrating God's redemption and rescue of His people from Egypt, right? Generations before, how He had rescued them when they were slaves and have brought them out. And now they're having this meal with Jesus and within hours, He's being crucified. He's being mocked. He's having those kneel before him, pretending that he's king, not knowing that they are absolutely mocking the king. And they spit upon him, and they beat him, and they have a sham of a trial, all in the cover of darkness. And they crucify him. Right? And that's what we talked about Friday. Right? This horrific moment, this turn. And then on Saturday, the disciples terrified, sad, broken, confused right as there's just silence, and they're wondering, what is it What is it that we're going to do? This has not gone the way we thought, trying to think back as to what Jesus has taught them, and what, like, what are we supposed to expect and do now? And so they've gone from coming in literally um, called king, to now Jesus is dead, and it's happened within a week. So I want to read to you this morning from Matthew 28, with these emotions heavy on the disciples. Now after the Sabbath, towards the dawn of the first day of the week, this is Matthew 28, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven, came and rolled back the stone and set on it. And his appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, "'Do not be afraid,' For I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. For He is risen as He said. Come, see the place where He lay. Then go quickly and tell the disciples that He is risen from the dead. And behold, He is going before you to Galilee. There you will see Him. See, I've told you. And so they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell His disciples. And behold, Jesus met them And said greetings. And they came and took hold of his feet and they worshiped him. And Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Like what a turn, right? This roller coaster of joy, of confusion, of pain, of suffering. Now, like you can imagine the the sadness in their hearts as they're going to the tomb, and now this overjoyed, like they are running to tell the, the disciples, He's alive. He is no longer in the tomb. He is alive. It's just as he said he would do. And so, where we're going to spend the rest of this morning is in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So, if you have your Bible, you can turn to 1 Corinthians 15. It's to the right if you're turning. That we have this powerful emotional thing that has taken place. And it doesn't stop there, right? The story isn't just period, end. It continues. And so Paul now is writing to the church in Corinth. And he's writing to the church, and they have some kind of wonky beliefs, right, that they're struggling with. And he is educating them and teaching them. And I want us to look just as how he starts chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed it in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Listen, church, this is our confession. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, which is Peter, then to the twelve, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep, meaning they've died. And then he appeared to James, and then to all of the apostles. Right? He begins this chapter saying, listen, what do we hold to be true? Like, What is our commonly held view? That Jesus died for our sins. That He was buried. And that He arose again. And that He was seen. That it happened. That it is real. That it is true. That it is verifiable. And church, this morning, around the world, we have brothers and sisters who on this side of heaven you will never meet who are proclaiming this belief. For 2,000 years we have had brothers and sisters saying this is what we believe to be true. This is our confession, that Jesus died for our sins, that He was buried, that He rose again, and that He is alive today. Like We hold this truth. This is what makes us a Christian, a little Christ. It's because we say this is true. Across cultures, across time, this is our confession. But I want to make sure this morning that we don't presume upon this, that we don't take it for granted. So I want us to look at this for a few moments. That the gospel itself, that those verses three through five, that it is heralding good news. Right? The gospel simply means good news. Right? That in accordance with Scripture, Paul is saying, Listen, this has been promised, this has been foretold, all of this is tied together. And if we look at the story of Scripture. Right, that we, we can tie it all together, that God is rescuing and redeeming His people for our good and for His glory. That He created a perfect world, and in our sin and in our rebellion, that we broke relationship with Him. We broke creation. It's why we have broken relationships this morning. It's why we grieve sin and sickness and tragedy and death. It's why we see the news littered full of horrific things that are taking place. Because the world's broken. But it wasn't made that way. It was broken due to rebellion and sin. And we all have a part in that. And we then see in the Old Testament that the people of God, God chooses a people and says, listen, you're going to, like, you're going to be a light that draws the world to see who your God is. So Israel, here's why I want you to live and here's how I want you to behave, and here's what I want you to do, and here's how I want you to trust me, and I'm going to care for you, and I'm going to provide for you, and I'm going to do all of these things so the world will see that there's one true God. And Israel often does this well, and they often, more often than not, absolutely wreck this. And so there's this roller coaster of scripture where Israel's honoring the Lord and they're they're being blessed in the promised land and all these things are happening and then they start to believe we're awesome. We've done this. Look how good we are. Look how mighty we are. Look how smart we are and they begin to turn from the Lord and trust in other things. And then things fall apart. And so they say, what are we going to do? And God says, here I am. And, and they come back. And we see this back and forth, this, this horrific roller coaster throughout. And yet, it looks like our lives. That on good days, we're trusting the Lord and saying, you're everything. You're king. And then far too often, we say, no, no, no. Hey, God, I've got it. I'll be, I'll be God of my life. I'll lead it. I'll guide it. I'll make the decisions. I'll submit to me, not to you. And then we cry out needing something from Him. And so what happens is, at the right time, born of a virgin, born under the law to redeem those who are under the law, Jesus steps into the scene to rescue us, to free us, to take us back to where we belong with God the Father for all time. That is the good news that all of Scripture is pointed us to is that we have a problem that's insurmountable that we can't overcome, and Jesus says, I'll take you back to where you belong. I will make things right. And so, He removes the wrath of God. The wrath of God that is to be poured out upon sinners. Jesus steps in and takes the wrath of God as a substitute for us. He takes our sin and gives us His righteousness. That's what's taking place at the cross, that He's a substitute and He takes the wrath of God, He becomes, quite literally, the sacrificial lamb. Innocent and without fault. And those with fault now are called innocent because of Jesus. That He frees us from bondage. that, That the power of sin is broken at the cross. Now listen, we can choose to be enslaved to sin, Right, We can put broken handcuffs back on, but the power of sin to hold us and to corrupt us has been broken. Jesus has done that. He has done a greater exodus and freed us from that which enslaves us. Listen to verse 26 of chapter 15. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Jesus has destroyed the enemies. The power of sin, death, these things that would hold us, And how beautiful is that, that what he's saying is all these things are going to be taken away and wiped out. right? Our sin, our our bad habits, the things that enslave us and hold us, the injustice that we see in the world. All of these things are being defeated and have been defeated by Jesus. But we live in this strange time in between Him doing this and it coming in fullness when He returns for us. And so now we live in the presence of sin, but with the power of it broken and the penalty of it paid for for those who trust in Jesus this morning. And so we have hope in His resurrection. And what He does is He changes then the trajectory we're on. Because we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Because we're all the enemies of God. Our trajectory is towards judgment. It is going to meet God, but it's not going to be pleasant. Jesus steps in takes that anger, takes that wrath, takes that punishment, and says, if you trust Me, I'm changing your trajectory, right? To belong. To be an adopted son or daughter of the King. Into eternity. Out of the kingdom of darkness and judgment and into the kingdom of light. Through the cross and His resurrection. Listen to how John writes this. This is... John chapter 1, verse 12. But to all who did receive Him, meaning Jesus, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. That it is our trust, our belief, our dependence that Jesus has done what we could not do and made us right with the Father. Then we become sons and daughters of the King. No longer deserving wrath and judgment but belonging at the table with Him. We read this verse on Friday night. I want to read it to us once again. This is 1 Peter 3.18. We can summarize this. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. And so the beauty of what has taken place is that Jesus stepped in and took what we deserved to give us what we did not deserve, but what we richly need. Deeply need. And so the reason we celebrate, the reason for 2,000 years the church has celebrated, the reason this has gone is because it's good news. You don't get it. You don't deserve it. You can't have it. Oh wait, here it is. Jesus has done what we cannot And it is beautiful, powerful, freeing, good news. And I love that Paul... Like he, it's like he hears the objections that are already beginning to take place. And he says, your past doesn't exclude you. Look at verse 9. He continues and he says, I'll start in verse 8. He said, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. So this is the Paul writing, saying, Jesus appeared to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, Because I persecuted the church of God. Paul will later write, he's like, I am the chief sinner. Like No one has sinned more than me. So this morning, if you're thinking, hey, this is good news, it does sound good, but I don't deserve the grace and mercy. You're right, you don't. But Jesus gives it freely anyway. Your past, whatever is in it, does not somehow exclude you this morning from this offer of hope, of joy, of peace, of grace. We are all without hope. We were all enemies. We were all dead in our sins. And so would you simply hear the good news this morning? That God loves you. And it's not trite. And it's not just something to throw on a t-shirt or a coffee mug. God's love was sacrificial and it was demonstrated at the cross that He came to rescue His people. To make us sons and daughters, to sit at the table for all time. The good news is, is you can't gain it or earn it, but it can be given. And Jesus has offered it. That we would take, and that we would receive. He has made a way, and His grace outruns your sin. And even now, the enemy may be whispering to you, but not yours, but not that one. If they knew, no way. But God does. He does. He sees it. He knows it. The things that you have done, the things that you have wanted, the things that you have thought, the things that you're ashamed of, the things that have been done to you. His grace far outruns all of. Us. And he's freeing and he's rescuing and he is loving and he is saving. It is a true good news. And as good as you think it is, it's better than you imagine just is. But His resurrection, and the reason today is so significant, is because His resurrection is a necessary component of the story. Listen, He has lived the life we were meant to live, right, and didn't, and then He dies the death that we deserve. But if it stops there, then He's simply a martyr, right, that tries to motivate us to live better, to trust God, right? It's the fact that He walked out of the grave. It says He's one. This is not just an almost good story. This is the greatest story. Look at verse 12. He, so he says, listen, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there's no resurrection of the dead? But if there is, like he's saying, so if you're right, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Your faith is in vain. We are found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise if it's true that the dead aren't raised. For if the dead are not raised, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of the people most to be pitied. And then he goes over to verse 32 and he says, So if the dead are not raised, then let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. So listen, if Jesus isn't alive, then this is all for naught. We are literally wasting our time, and this is the worst hobby in history there's far better things you could be doing and enjoying right now if this isn't true. But he says that it is true that Jesus is alive, that He is resurrected. And so because of that, it means that we are no longer in our sins, that we aren't without hope, that there is purpose and there is meaning. So we have hope eternally and actually because Jesus has been resurrected. And so he says, listen, so if Jesus has been resurrected, and we've seen that he resurrected bodies, right? We, he, um, the widow's son, um, Lazarus, that he's brought people back to life, and now he has come back to life. He says, so what's the benefit for us? And he begins to talk about a seed. And he says, I want you to picture a seed, whatever seed you want. And he says, you put that seed in the ground, and you bury it, right? It's dead, and then something comes up from it that looks different than what you could have imagined. right? When you plant a watermelon seed, it's hard to imagine that little seed becomes watermelon. right? When you plant wheat, when you plant flowers, that what comes up from it looks nothing like what was buried. So listen to what he's saying to us. This is verse 35. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? What kind of body do they have? And he says, you foolish person, what you sow, what you plant, doesn't come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as He has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same. There's one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another kind. Down to verse 42. And so it is with resurrection of the dead. What is sown, right? What is planted is perishable, but what is raised is imperishable. So the imagery he's giving here is he's like, when your body is laid in the ground, it is like that seed. And you think, he says, you think it's just going to look like that coming up. He's like, it's different. You can't even imagine what it's going to be. It is sown in dishonor. It's raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, and it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. And so he's saying our hope is that these bodies of flesh that fail us, that grow old, that grow weary, that grow tired, that don't do what we want, who don't work properly are going to be buried. And we will be raised to new life with a spiritual body that our mind can't imagine, just like we can't imagine how that little seed becomes a big watermelon. He's like, Your body is going to come up different, perfect, and spiritual, and imperishable. Because Jesus has defeated sin and Satan and death, He has done it. So, He then tells us, right? that it allows us to look at death differently. We don't have to fear it in the same way because it, it's, 2 Corinthians five eight tells us to be absent with the body is to be present with the Lord. So we don't fear death. We look to it saying the Lord is going to do something. In that moment, He's going to raise our body imperishable. It looks one way and it will be different. And that Jesus Himself, look at verse 23, is the first fruits. How do we know this to be true? How can we hope in it? Because Jesus has already done it. That he was dead and buried, and he walked out of the tomb. And that he's alive today. He didn't die a second time. He is alive eternally. He is the first fruits of the harvest of which those who trust and belong to Jesus will also be harvested. His eternal spiritual. Body. So we have hope. We have hope that this life doesn't get the final say. We have hope that sin and disease that ravage the body. We have hope that injustice and suffering and pain and circumstances do not get the final say. And because of that, then the argument Paul is making all throughout 1 Corinthians 15 is the resurrection matters for today, not just for eternity. Right? It's not just for when we die. It matters for today. Look at verse ten. But by the grace of God, I'm not. Sorry, but but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And His grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. But it wasn't me. It was the grace of God that is with me. And then go over to verse thirty-four. So he's talking to the church. He says, "Wake up from your drunken stupor." As is right. And don't go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. What are you saying is, listen, you couldn't earn this, but you've been given it. And he does mean eternity for you. But in the meantime, walk in faithful obedience. Become holy and trust and follow after me. And it affects the way that we live even now. And so the order matters. And if we live right, in an attempt to gain God's affection and His attention and live holy enough lives we've missed it we can't Jesus has done it and because he's done it we then walk in obedience to it because in verse 3 our sin has been covered and paid for because in verse 55 death has been defeated listen to this oh death where's your sting oh death where is your victory the de- the sting of death is sin but the power of sin is the law but thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have been pulled out of the kingdom of darkness and put into the kingdom of light. Death has been defeated. Our sin has been paid for. And so he says, so now, as long as the Lord fills your lungs with air and you have energy to move forward, walk in faithful obedience and holiness, making much of Him because we don't have to fear death as a separator. Jesus is alive. He is Emmanuel, God with us. He has given us prayer as access to Him. And so it means this morning as we started, listen, as you're praying, He hears your prayers. As you sing, it's not just for us. It is beneficial for us. It's encouraging, but it's for Him. He's alive to hear and to receive these things. He has left His Spirit and His Word and His church And He is at work. Binding you. Shaping you into Christ-likeness. Caring about you. Hearing your concerns. That you can cast upon Him. So it means, right, He has us here in this day and age, in this place, for a reason. To make much of Him. To point others to the hope that we have. To walk in faithful obedience. He gives us a path to follow. But listen, here's here's the thing. In the Bible Belt, what we've often told people is, hey, right, like, kneel down and pray this elaborate prayer of salvation. we we'll stand up and we're like, is that, is that it? And, yeah, yeah, that's it, you're saved now. And what we have often done and maybe have even been taught to do, all right, now go do your thing. But when you die, you'll go to heaven. God has just rescued you from hell. And so we go off on a path doing our thing, but with this semi-assurance that God has rescued us. And occasionally we need Him and so we cry out, Oh God, help! Right? But we're on our own path. And so we're not sure if He's going to hear us or respond or have we done this thing right? Instead, what Jesus has said is, Would you follow me? And so it's, it's not kneeling and praying and doing our own thing. It's, it's kneeling to the King. Saying, I trust your salvation. And then we follow Him and His path. Leaving our old life and our old trajectory away and making much of Jesus. That we follow Him and we become Christ-like and we're transformed and we're changed. Because so we're following Jesus. Because we trust that where he's taking us is where we belong. And so we live then without fear. Paul actually, look at verse 32. He says, What do I gain, humanly speaking? Like, I fought with beasts at Ephesus, right? He's like, Why would I put my life at risk in shipwrecks and in in fights and in prison if this wasn't true? Like, if I wasn't going to get to be resurrected? I would hold on to this life with all that I've got because it's the only one I have. He's like, that would be the norm. We would say, let's eat, drink, right? Because tomorrow we die. We would hold on to all the comforts that we could. But he said, if this isn't all that there is, if there is eternity, if there is a kingdom, if Jesus is who he says he is, then we can live with boldness in this life. What are you going to do? You're going to take my body? Fine. There will be a resurrection. Because the king of the universe has me in his hand. And I'm secure not because of my knowledge or my ability, but because of him. And he is faithful. And he has kept his word. And how do I know? Because he's alive. He has done it. And I can trust in that. And so it's why we can live lives of worship, being bold in our decision making, going to places where they hate Christians to tell people of the good news. We can live in light of the kingdom. Because there is hope and there is eternity and there is resurrection and we're not alone and we are kept. All of these things, right, then motivate the reason that we live lives to please, to honor Jesus. Because He's already given us everything we need for life and for godliness. And so, listen. One final verse. Jesus gets the final say. Death doesn't. Sin doesn't. Kingdom of darkness doesn't. Jesus does. He said it's finished and secured for us a path. He walked out of the grave, and he is awaiting a return. So we then end with this encouragement for us this morning in verse fifty-eight of first Corinthians fifteen. Therefore, my beloved brothers. And sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not. See, your trust and your dependence and your effort on His behalf. Listen, we don't do it to curry more favor. Like Paul says, I worked harder than all of them. But by the grace of God, anything happened. But by the grace of God, I was able to do any of it. So we work and it is not in vain. The Lord sees and the Lord will reward. He's alive. Would we worship and respond and celebrate that this morning and with the lives we live moving forward in the days, weeks, months, and years to come? Let's pray. Father, for this morning, Lord, for those who haven't trusted this, who who doubt that this is true, when they hear Your still small voice speaking to their heart, speaking to their mind, saying this is true, and hear them calling, Lord, that You would call them to Yourself. Lord, for those in the room this morning who do trust You. Who do belong to you? God would we move forward with, with boldness and hope? Not in our ability to, to be holy or obedient, but in the fact that we belong to you, that there is eternity, that there is resurrection, and that you're with us, working and moving and showing your glory and your power in our lives and in those around us. So, Father, this morning, would we honor you with songs and with with prayer and with Scripture? But, God, even more so, would we honor you with our lives, trusting that you are who you say you are, and that you will do what you have promised to do. God, give us faith, trust, and to believe that. In Jesus' name, amen.